0: Welcome to SCOTUS Talk. I'm Amy Howe. Thanks for joining us today. We are very fortunate to have with us Lyle Denniston, who has been covering the Supreme Court for over 60 years, uh, including for SCOTUS blog for over a decade, for the Boston Globe, the Baltimore Sun, the Wall Street Journal, and many others. Lyle, thanks so much for joining
1: us. Amy, it's a delight to be back with you again. Uh, I miss everybody at SCOTUS Blog, and uh, I haven't yet had a chance to meet all the new, bright talent that you've brought on board. But uh, it's, it's good to be back with you, Amy, and uh, looking forward to uh, canvassing what the, the good, the bad, and the ugly about the last term.
0: Well, before we get started looking at the last term, um, you know, that actually brings up a question that we get pretty much every time we have a live blog on SCOTUS blog. Um, What exactly are you... What are you up to these days?
1: Oh, uh, well, um, my wife and I moved into a retirement community uh, outside of Washington um, in February, um, and um, we were just trying to get acquainted. We had only been here a few weeks when uh, the COVID problem developed and so our community was just literally shut down and we couldn't even leave our campus. So, uh, I've been reading, um I've been trying to work my way through Michael Klarman's, uh, master work on, uh, uh the founding of the country and the Constitution. Um, I also, uh, have been contributing to a, uh, in-house, um, uh, chat room that we have here. Uh, and uh I did uh briefings in advance of all of the uh, broadcast arguments, so that the people here listening to them would understand them a little better. Um, I wrote these um in plain English as you and I used to do together um and uh I still write for my own blog uh Lyle Dan Law News um maybe a couple of times a week, but uh I'm trying to learn how to say no, um, and uh, that's not going terribly well. But uh, in any case, I'm, I'm having fun, or I wouldn't be doing it.
0: Well, you have very lucky neighbors. So you have been following the Supreme Court for over 60 years, um, but this was a pretty unusual term by, no matter how you slice it and dice it. So what sort of, sort of on broad general terms, what stood out to you from this past term?
1: Well, uh, what uh, I think the first thing that occurred to me was that the center is obviously more dynamic than it had been when uh, Anthony Kennedy was there, or when O'Connor was the center, and and when Lewis Powell was the center. I really think there is a what I do think of as a dynamic center that includes basically the Chief and just, Justices prior and Kagan. Um, I think both Breyer and Kagan have great ambitions to uh, to influence the course of the court's work, um, and of course, so does the Chief. But uh, um, they have been voting with him this way this term, and I think the statistics will probably bear this out uh, in some very controversial cases that were a bit of a surprise to me. Um, so I think they are trying to stay in the mix. Um, uh, even though, you know, the usual 5-4 does recur a lot, but I think they are, they are making a serious effort, as I think is the chief, to try to moderate, um, what might have occurred if, uh, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh's joining the court had really pulled the court in you know, a, uh, swift and hard direction to the right. So, um, I think uh, we're going to see more of this from here on, um, but uh I also felt at the end of the term that uh there was a lot of counterpoints um you know i'm I'm familiar with people saying that the chief uh, obviously um, they say he drifted to the left well, I don't think so because uh you know he's for every more or less progressive decision that he wrote or joined i mean there is um a counterpoint in the past um and for example, uh, I, I think in his vote on the electoral college, uh, we all remember very well how much he has done to try to uh, to weaken the Voting Rights Act of 1965. So um, whatever whatever progressive moves he makes in one field may well be offset in another. So I don't think he's moving left so much as uh, he's become the center. Um, along with uh, uh, Kagan and Breyer, uh, and I think probably ju- Justice Kavanaugh would like to be a part of that. Uh, though I think his conservative instincts will restrain him, and, and maybe to the same degree uh, Justice Gorsuch. But you know, I, I think there's no there's no hope for uh, uh, Ginsburg and Sotomayor, uh, Thomas, and Alito be to be centrist because uh, I think they're all pretty well set.
0: So it, it's not, I think Adam Feldman has described the chief not as a swing justice, but more as a median justice. And so, you know, we think of the the Supreme Court as sort of this five to four, or maybe four, four and one with the chief justice in the middle, but it's really more like two, three, two, two, or something like that. You know, we've got Ginsburg and Sotomayor who are pretty far on the left, and then you've got Breyer and Kagan, Thomas and Alito on the other side, and then the, the chief and Gorsuch and Kavanaugh are sort of another block somewhere in there? Is that what you're thinking?
1: Yeah, well, I, you know, I, we we always look to try to count to five, you know, and, uh, and there are obviously shifting majorities now, but it's clear that the chief justice very much wants to be uh, in the majority, particularly on five fours. Because I, I think he thinks it does not contribute to uh, the court's public repute for there to be five fours with him in dissent. Uh, though he's done that, of course, he did it. He did it in the Texas abortion case um, two years ago. So um, I, I do think, I, as I said earlier, I do think of it as a dynamic middle, which which is shifting back and forth, and uh, it's it's a little harder to predict. Which I think. Uh, makes it more interesting for uh, observers of the court, including the media.
0: And speaking of harder, pr- harder to predict, um, I found the May arguments particularly hard to predict because of the format of the oral arguments. You were very critical of the, the format that the court used for the telephone arguments, in which you know, each justice took turns asking questions.
1: Well, um, you know, after having observed uh, oral argument uh, for more than a half a century, um, I have some biases about it because um, it, it is um, uh, and the first opportunity for the justices to talk to each other and um, talk through each other through the council to each other in order to set the agenda for the private conference discussion. And this completely um, destroyed, I think, that opportunity for crosstalk. And uh, I mean, I had other objections, too. I thought the chief took much more control of it than he was entitled to. I thought he was somewhat variable and even at times arbitrary in uh, how he allowed either counsel or one of the other justices to continue. I know he was trying to keep time. But I got the sense that um, that he was more interested in control than he was in time. So I, th- I I I would not say it was a disaster, but I thought it was something that I thought it was something that I hope to God they never repeat. Um, and so I I think it is better for them um, to decide cases based upon the, the briefs. Um, um, than it is to try to do it orally with all of the justices separated like this. Um, I mean, other courts have done it, uh, lower courts have done it, I think with greater success, and I'm not sure why that's true, but um, uh, I think uh, I think this was a, a really bad show. Um, and uh, when the term begins in October, if the virus is still as prevalent as it is now, I hope they just simply decide cases on the briefs without oral argument.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think one one option that probably would allow them to use something pretty close to their original format would be to use video teleconferencing or video conferencing. But then they'd have to do that on TV uh, for all of the public to see. So that did not happen.
1: I don't think they're ready to convert to... uh, Public broadcast on TV of the arguments. Um, no, I know a lot of people so. thought. Yeah, you know, I think a lot of people thought. Well, they've gone this far; they have to keep going. I don't believe that at all.
0: No, I think they went that far so that they didn't have to keep going any further. No. Um, but we did hear from Justice Thomas as a result of the, the telephone arguments and the format that they used
1: well i was um i was delighted with that because uh, i happen to think justice thomas is one of the more interesting members of the court because he thinks so creatively and originally in fact he wants to basically throw out all constitutional doctrine and start over which is which is really refreshing even if it uh, doesn't uh, give workable results in a lot of ongoing controversies, but I thought it was a good display of how intelligent he is, um, how well prepared he is, um, and uh, you know, from some perspectives, how wrong he is. But at least uh, the people got to see Clarence Thomas, and I know that for years people have said um, rather unpleasant things about he doesn't participate in oral argument because he's not smart enough well he he clearly is smart enough and he has a lot of reasons about why he doesn't participate, none of which are really very persuasive but in any case, I thought it was refreshing for him to be a part of it and uh, I think the the public probably got a better a better perspective on uh, how much a part of the court he actually is. I think that's right.
0: And particularly when he went second in every oral argument because he is the second most senior justice. And so frequently other justices would refer back to his question. So clearly his colleagues also have a lot of respect for him and his questions.
1: Oh well, I think they do. Yeah.
0: yeah. You mentioned the uh the, the Louisiana abortion case, talking about the Chief Justice, he was in the dissent in the Texas case, in, back in 2016, in that, in that case the Supreme Court struck, struck down a Texas law that required doctors who perform abortions to have the right to admit patients at nearby hospitals. And he dissented in that case. The Justice Anthony Kennedy joined the court's four more liberal justices. But then this year, he provided the fifth vote to strike down a Louisiana law. Were you surprised? Uh,
1: by that by his vote in that case um uh, i was uh, uh quite substantially surprised but even more surprising to me was the degree to which he embraces the casey president president as he understands it, it, it the, casey is the 1992 decision in which the court in part reaffirmed roe versus wade and set out the substantial burden test um I I was really quite surprised at how fully he has uh, uh, lined himself up with Casey. And I think Casey is now going to be even more powerful, um, a deterrent to some of these more extreme uh, um, bills that are being passed in the state legislatures, like the, uh, you know, the fetal heartbeat bills or, the six-week or 10-week bans on abortion. Um, I don't think any of those could pass uh, muster under the Casey standard, even as he understands it. Um, what he threw out, of course, was uh, uh, the Breyer approach that um, courts should balance the uh, benefit to women's health against the uh, impediment to their uh, choice about reproductive uh, freedom. And he, he just cast that aside. But um, He did um, line up with Casey in a way that I think is going to make a major difference in this field for quite a few years to come.
0: Something else that doesn't get a lot of attention, and hence its name, is what, what some people have called the court's shadow docket. All of the emergency requests that come to the Supreme Court asking the justices to step in and put a lower court decision on hold. Um, for example, or a lot for example, as we've been doing the last couple of days covering uh, allowing an execution to go forward. Um, the federal government has been highly successful in the Supreme Court in the past couple of years. They've come to the Supreme Court a lot. Um, can you say a little bit about that?
1: Yes, um I, I actually think, Amy, that that's, that's kind of a dirty pool because, uh, it embarrasses the court into making decisions without very full consideration because the, and it's kind of using the motions practice to achieve, uh, temporary merits results. And, um it shows an enormous disrespect for and distrust of the lower judiciary. Um, Because, uh, you know, trial judges really are at the front line and they have to manage cases under extreme uh, um, caseload pressure and often time pressure. Um, And by running to the Supreme Court after district courts have ruled, uh, it shows not only disrespect for the process in the district court, but shows uh, that they don't care about what the courts of appeals do. But I think the main problem with it is that it it puts into effect highly controversial policies. For example, the uh, um, the policy on uh, uh, excluding uh, transgender people from the military. Um, you know that the emergency application in that um, has not matured into an actual merits case, uh, and yet the policy is in operation. Um, they and they did that a lot during the uh, uh, Muslim travel ban cases. And so I I think it is it it is a, it is an institutional affront to the court to keep doing that. And uh, it does make um, it does I think give some hint to the public that the court is operating as the handmaiden of uh, a political policy agenda. Because the Trump administration is using this kind of emergency approach over and over again in order to be able to implement immediately policies that have not been fully adjudicated. So, uh, you know, and the, and the court really doesn't have any choice about it, uh, you know, because, um, and this is something I think we noticed um, each time the court has ruled on one of Trump's policy agendas the court feels obliged to show a lot of institutional respect to the presidency as a coordinate branch. Um, And so if the court's going to continue to do that, then the incumbent administration has got to um, give up the idea that the court is simply their uh, rubber stamp for implementing their policies immediately without a full review under the uh, under long prevailing habits and procedures. So I think it's an affront all the way around. And uh, I hope uh, if uh, there's a change in administration that the next administration doesn't continue that policy.
0: And what are you watching for next
1: term? Well, I think the the, the uh, main thing is the Affordable Care Act, um, because uh, that Here is, we are um, again. <laughs> yeah, well, but you know, um, it um, it really is terribly important at this stage uh, on a number of different levels, and as you fully appreciate, I mean, it's so important in terms of how um, uh, the American people cope with the incredible cost of health care. Um, but it's also institutionally important and important to constitutional precedent because the, uh, the the doctrine of severability is is very little understood but it is profoundly important and it gets the courts into the business of trying to speculate openly speculate as to what congress might have had in mind um which is of course uh, that kind of thing is supposedly anathema to uh, a an independent uh, judicial tribunal but The court really doesn't have any choice because if they find one part of a multifaceted law to be uh, unconstitutional, uh, if they don't try to sever, uh, do the severability analysis, they're necessarily going to have to strike down the whole thing. And uh, obviously, uh, that is not good for legislative uh, uh, norms nor is it good for policymaking. so um i think that is a really big case uh and i don't think it's going to go away because uh, uh you know the uh, the state of texas and its allies have been really constant adversaries uh, uh throughout the process and uh, even if the uh biden administration if there is one uh decides to switch sides uh and take the position that the Obama administration did, then I think the case is going to still be alive. And so I'm looking forward to that. I'm also looking forward to the possibility that the next term there will be more sequels on uh, the subpoena cases.
0: Yes. Yes. I think that those are uh, active as we speak. Well. I hope that we will see you in person sometime soon so that we can talk about this more, but we'd love to have you back. I'd be delighted,
1: as I always have been, to rejoin you.
0: Fantastic. Um, Lyle Denniston, thank you so much for coming on to talk with us.
1: Okay. Bye-bye.
0: That's another episode of SCOTUS Talk. Thanks to Case Text, our sponsor, and to our production team, Katie Barlow, Katie Bart, Cal Goldie, and James Ramoser.